Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Well, friends, we're glad you're jumping in here with us today. We are actually going to take a break from our Life of David study for just a few weeks. We're starting a new series this week called Scattered Together. And really just culturally, as we begin to re-engage with our city, re-engage with one another, and and kind of have in-person meetings again and rediscover what that's like, uh, we just want to maximize this time and take a few weeks and talk about really what does it mean for us to be the community of God? What does it mean for us to to love one another and, and just to connect even though we're not together, but to be unified and be in community, even as we're scattered throughout the city, but really looking forward to the day when we can fully engage in community again. So that's the heartbeat behind where we are. And uh, let me just pray for us as we jump in here. Father, I pray and just ask for your spirit to be at work in us. We ask for your grace, for your mercy. Father, we ask that that's just that you'd breathe life into this. Father, that this would not feel burdensome, uh, but would feel like a blessing, that we would would know your grace, that this would not feel like mere duty, but that we'd delight in you, delight in the love of Christ for us and for your church and delight in the love that we have for one another. Father, just ask that that you would breathe life to that end um, for each of us, Father, that, that no one would walk alone, that everyone would would lock arms and be known, and Father, we would be a community that puts on display the love of Christ to our city, to our world, as we love one another well, uh, just as we've been loved by you in, in Jesus. And so, Father, we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, if this season's taught us anything, it's that relationships make the world go round. Being isolated from friends and family is taking a toll on all of us. Everyone I talk to just looks like they're at their end of the rope, just going, man, I am, I'm just ready to re-engage with actual people, to be in the room with people to reconnect. But uh, we've seen examples all over of our desire for connection. I think of drive-by parties for graduates and, and birthdays. I think of grandparents greeting uh, new, new grandbabies through the window. I think of those who have dropped family members off for surgeries and had to sit in the parking lot and they're wanting to hold a hand but they're having to look through a window to greet those that they love. I think of neighbors singing on balconies or across the streets and neighborhoods. And there's just so many examples. Great uh, great videos have, have kind of gone viral. I've seen some of those on John Krasinski's Some Good News and just kind of bringing the tearjerker videos one after another for us to, to kind of look at and marvel in. And in that there's something really Really, really good. It says that we are that we're longing for connection. That we're 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 really made for this relationship. That relationships that we that we want and we desire. And people are are important to real living. As Christians, the Bible tells us that we were created for connection. We were created for community. We were created for relationship with God and with one another. And so that's we, we know that that's core to our design. We understand really what all of that flows out of. It's at the very heart of our faith. And so we want to take a few weeks and we just want to talk about community and what does it look like for us to live in relationship for one another? What's God's design and desire for that? And, and really, I just... I feel like we're in such a unique time that this is teaching from the Bible that I feel like we just need to be shouting from the mountaintops in this season because God's given us beautiful instruction about all of these things. And so as we think about this, I want us to pause and talk about it now because 
I'm just, I'm a little in, in fear that we're gonna, that we're in danger of just running past the moment. The, the, just in our desire to just get back to normal, to, to throw out the baseballs again and to get the NBA playoffs going and get ready for football season and, and so many other areas of life that we're just gonna run past this moment and not allow God to shape us through everything that we've been through over the last several months and in the months ahead. And there's two contradictory drives that I really see and I, I, I wanna mention these because I think they, they show where some of the attention shows up for us even culturally on a broader scale. And I want to step back and talk about that today. And, and there's two contradictory drives that I think are powerfully at work in our world. One is we're hungry for community and connection. We want to be together with others. But then there's this kind of contradictory drive that pushes up against that, that we're more angry, polarized, and antagonistic towards one another than at any time in my lifetime. And so we desire community, but we're also fighting against it. And these two weird kind of drives are pushing us and, and creating and really collisions and battles all around us, which keep us from achieving the things that we want. The very thing we want, our actions are actually working against so that we keep destroying it. Reminds me of Romans 7 where he says, and the thing that I desire, well, I desire to do what's right, but I don't have the ability to do it. For I do what I do not want, and the evil I don't want to do, I keep on doing. And Paul's kind of just scratching his head going, what am I doing to myself? And I look at our society, and I, I see the same sort of a thing going on in the, in, in the, the people of, of our country and of, of our world. We say we want to connect with others, but we keep pushing them away. And somehow we lack the strength and the skills needed to navigate the committed relationships we desperately need and want. And so that tension keeps bubbling to the surface, I think, in what I see. So here's the interesting thing for, my, for me as I think about this biblically. We Christians are uniquely equipped to really deal with this exact sort of thing. In fact, when I ask you just a simple question, what is the mark, the distinguishing mark of a Christian? To steal a title from Francis Schaeffer. Well, Jesus showed us very clearly that the mark of a Christian is love. Let's look at uh, John 13. Here we see this spelled out really clearly by Christ. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, in this passage, Jesus, he's not giving us a suggestion. He's not giving us a church strategy. He's giving us a commandment. This is a mandate. He's giving us a, a very simple, clear call. He says, love one another. That's a command. That's, that's the whole thing. There, there's nothing else. He's just love one another. That's the new command he wants to give. And so he gives us that. He also gives us our motivation to do so. He says, look, just as I've loved you, you're to love one another. I've already poured myself out to you, so you then turn and pour yourself out to others. So he's given us a mandate. He's given us a motivation. He also then gives us our mission. He says, by this, all people will know that you're truly my disciples if you love one another. And so there's, there's a sense of kind of outward focus and mission there. He's saying that all the people of the world will know who I am if they see you love one another. Now, Here's the, the, the tension part of this verse is that tiny little word, if. Because when it, the fact that this is a command means that it's something we can choose to do or not to do. We're commanded to love one another. He says, but if you do this, then everyone will know that you're my disciples, but only if you have love one for another. 
Now this shouldn't be new to us. Jesus said uh, the commandments are all summed up by love the God, Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So he sums up the law and says this is what life is about. And he says here that they're going to know you're truly following me if you live this out and love one another. And so today I want us to step back because I think sometimes we can get fixated in the moment, especially in such an intense season like the one we've been in. And so I want to step back and look at some church history. And we're going to look at how kind of the, the history of the church of how we've worked this stuff out in the past. And so I want us to be aware of the past, influenced by it, building upon it. Uh, but also then we're going to end, we're going to, we're going to be aware of the present. And I really want us to be cognizant of some of the challenges we face right now in our society. So let's start by looking at the early church fathers and how they viewed the church. And really the, the first thing I want you to see today is that unity and community are strengthened by doctrine. Unity and community, our love uh, together is strengthened by doctrine. And the early church fathers told us this. We call them the fathers because, or they oftentimes called the apostolic fathers because of the close proximity to Jesus' apostles. So Jesus taught the 12 apostles. He appointed them. And these guys kind of came right on the heels right after them. And so you see a guy like Clement in 80, uh, 96, 98, early on said that, that we're to fight for a strong community that should be built by humility so that the church can remain unified under the, the faith of the church. And so it's humility that drives that under the teaching of the church. And the fathers argue that, that our beliefs were the foundation of our unity and community. They're the thing that brought us together, the thing that unites us. And for us in our culture, that may seem really foreign to us, but take a guy like Ignatius in 8110. He connected church doctrine to church unity. He said, both the unity of the two natures of Jesus ought to tell us that we should be unified, but especially the unity of the triune Godhead tells us what our community ought to look like. And so um, he, he makes the, the grounds of our togetherness mean to be the togetherness of our triune God, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are three in one and they are in perfect unity together. And because of that, we should mirror that and we should be in perfect community as well. Now Ignatius was arguing that our beliefs ought to determine our behavior, that orthopraxy follows orthodoxy. So the the things that we hold to, our doctrine, our beliefs, ought to drive the ways in which we act and behave and live. And because we worship a triune God, then we should, who lives in community, we should also want to live in community. So God is our model of what perfect, perfect community looks like. When you think of uh, this thing called the Trinity, this great mystery that we that we hold—that God is a three-in-one God, that He is only one God, but He's three distinct persons: God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit—that they live in perfect harmony with one another and in mutual love of one another—and that becomes our model. That that Jesus says this is the model for the community of the church that we are to love one another just as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit love one another. Now, where would, where would Ignatius have gotten such a crazy idea? Well, he got it from Jesus. In John 17, we see a similar uh, passage to the one we read in John 13. And this one is part of Jesus' prayer for the church. And so we're going to look in verses 20 to 23 of John 17. It says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. So Jesus is asking for his disciples, those that are with him. He says, God, I'm praying. I'm asking you for this. I'm asking you this, not just for the ones I'm talking to right here, but also for all those who are going to believe through their message and through the gospel that they spread. So by the way, that's you and me. So this is Jesus praying for his disciples and for all those who will be influenced by them. So he's praying for you and for me as he prays here. And what does he pray? 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I'm in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given it to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be Come perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. This prayer is mind blowing when you think of what Jesus is asking his heavenly Father to do for you and for me. What he wants to see happen in us so that all the world would understand who Jesus is. And really, the heartbeat of this is the spread of the gospel and the spread of the good news of the love of God. And he prays, what did Jesus pray for us? That we would all be one in exactly the same way that the Father and the Son are one. That's astounding. He goes on and says that they would be perfectly in community just as we're perfectly in community. So that's what he wants to see happen in us as his people. And then he gets to the real test. He says, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. He's saying that our message depends on our love. That our message about the love of God to the world depends and rests and rides upon the love that we have for one another. Francis Schaeffer says it this way. He says, we cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, unless the world sees some reality of oneness in true Christians. Without true Christians loving one another, Christ says the world cannot be expected to listen to us, even when we have proper answers. But after we've done our best to communicate to the lost world, still we must never forget that the final apologetic what Jesus Christ gives is the observable love of true Christians for other true Christians. Schaefer says that, the, that love is the last best argument we have to the world about who, who God is and who Jesus is and what he came to do. When we want others to believe in Jesus, the best argument we have is to love one another. See, the Christian ethic of love was the first line of defense in the first century and second century, which is why you see it in Clement and Ignatius and so many of the early church fathers, but it's also the first line of defense in the 21st century as we seek to live this out. And so in our world today, if you step back and think about where we are in the present, the, the highest values that get, that get elevated in our world are self-expression, self-determination, self-identity. Everything is about individualistic expression of who I desire to be and the freedom to get to live that out in that sort of way. And so this kind of love that Jesus is talking about is a, is a radical and wonderful kind of love. It's something that's gonna get people's attention is unique and different. Now friends, that's, that's good news for us. If, if we love like Jesus is calling us to love, we're gonna get the attention of the world around us to listen to the message about Jesus and his grace. Can I tell you how encouraged I was to see so many people in our church loving in this season? And I just was thinking about that as I was thinking, what does it look like for us to love one another? And I just thought of some of the examples of the ways you guys loved one another in this season. And from phone calls that were unexpected just to encourage someone or check in on them. Uh, prayers that, that were offered for others. Texts that were given. They're saying, hey, I'm praying for this for you. And, and maybe even sending a prayer to them. I think of uh, meals that were prepared and offered and delivered. Uh, visits in the driveway just to stop by and say, hey, I just wanted to say hello. I wanted to see your face. I think of uh, healthcare workers who were encouraged and prayed for, uh, gift cards and money that was given to those that had needs and so many other ways that just practically, we as a church family were caring for one another and I want you to know and that gives substance and life to our message about Jesus. 
That is the thing that, that, that breathes life into the, the, the message that we, that we want to tell our city about and we want them to know about. So keep it up, friends. Keep loving one another and let's keep leaning in there and let's grow and do it all the more. But the early church fathers don't, don't stop there. So let me show you another aspect that we see from the early church and they, as they try to live out what this looked like. Uh, we, we said first that unity and community was strengthened by doctrine. Uh, secondly, we see in the early church that unity and community was strengthened by discipleship. Our goal is to become more and more like Jesus. To be a disciple means to be a learner, to be a pupil, to be a student, to be one who is seeking to follow in the footsteps of a master. And so when you think about being a disciple, it's we want to grow and become more like Jesus. John 13, Jesus said, just as I loved you, you're also to love one another. And so the early church took seriously the call to live like Jesus. Uh, These guys were silly enough to believe that Jesus actually meant what he said. It seems kind of crazy, right? Uh, But they they actually tried to live it out. So when Jesus in Mark 8 uh, said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whatever, whoever would lose, would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. They believed him. They took him at his word and they said, well, then I need to see what it is that I need to, to, deny my, to do to deny myself and to follow Jesus. Uh, these men and women believed it so much that some of them actually lost their lives for Christ and martyred him. I take, for example, Justin Martyr. Uh, you want to guess how he got his name? You, you could probably see that one coming, right? But Justin Martyr, writing about 150, 160, insisted that when Christians were tortured, that they, they should not renounce their confession in Christ, but should stay true. And when he was arrested for his faith in Rome, the prefect asked him to denounce his faith and make a sacrifice to their gods. And Justin replied, no one who is rightly minded turns from true belief to false. And he stood his ground. And this is what he believed, and he couldn't bend from that. The fathers actually claimed, if you go back and study, and it was fun for me reading some of this this week, but they just said a large number of people came to faith because they watched believers stay true while they were suffering. So the, the testimony of believers that stayed true to their faith, even under great persecution, actually birthed more and more Christians as more and more people observed that and saw it. And so the letter to Diognetius says this, Christians, when punished day by day, increase more and more. So they're punished every day, but it keeps adding to their number as people watch and see what happens. It says, it's no less supposed than this that God has ordered them and they must not try to evade it. Historian Jeff Bingham writes this, since discipleship meant following Christ, then being his disciple may very well involve stepping into the blood-soaked footprints left by Jesus under the cross. In our culture, even in our Christian culture, which underscores self-fulfillment and self-preservation, such statements appear grotesque, even repulsive. This, however, may say more about the oddity of modern Christianity and its view of what constitutes discipleship than it does about the eccentricity of the church fathers. They would not embrace self-preservation at the expense of not imitating Christ. They were willing to surrender to the Father's will because they were not greater than their master, Jesus. See, they didn't flinch when it came to following Jesus. They trusted him. And if Jesus asked them to follow, they did. Now, I'm not idolizing them or pretending they were perfect. I'm not saying we need to go back in every matter and imitate their every thought and pattern, but maybe, friends, maybe, just maybe, people that were willing to lay down their life for their faith ought to be people that we would listen to in humility as our, as our brothers and sisters have gone before us and just see what they would have to say about what it looks like to truly follow in the steps of Jesus. 
Friends, this is your spiritual heritage. These are your brothers and your older brothers and sisters. And this is what's been handed down to us. In the martyrdom of Polycarp around AD 155, um, as he's challenged, a man named Polycarp says this. He says, for 86 years I've been the servant of Jesus and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? You threaten me with a fire that burns only briefly, and after just a little while, it's extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of coming judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come, do to me what you wish. I mean, it's astounding to see his faith and his testimony. A young mother, Perpetua, who was arrested along with five of her friends, was martyred in 203. She had an infant son, and she had a pagan father who begged her continually to renounce her faith, and yet she insisted on admitting what she was, a Christian, and she went to death. And when I read these, these stories are they're jarring for us. We can't imagine living with such choices. It feels, honestly, a little bit radical and extreme. But when I read their stories, it also makes me read my New Testament differently. Listen to 1 Peter 2. It says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When, he, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. So Peter takes this and says, this is what we've been called to, that Christ left us an example that we might follow in his steps. Friends, Christ has healed us not so that we would live for self and for sin, but that we would live for him and for one another. Christ is, is, is working righteousness in us. The fathers, when I read about this, they just they lived out that calling in real ways. And it makes me just ask the question, what does it look like for us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus in 2020 in suburban Oklahoma City? And they didn't just follow Jesus, though, in, in dying for the faith. Those early church fathers also lived, uh, also lived by faith. And 315, the Edict of Milan gave Christians protections against persecution. And in that, they no longer, uh, Christianity really lay a little bit shortly thereafter, received official sanction. And so they no longer had to fear. They no longer had to worry. In many ways, they, they entered a new period of peace and freedom and expansion. But they also worried that it might become too easy to be a Christian. And so when their lives were no longer taking being taken from them, they began to willingly surrender their rights in order to kind of wean themselves off the world and learn what it looked like to, to walk with Jesus. So Christian monasticism and some of the spiritual movements of that day were really fueled by a drive to be Christ's disciples, to engage in spiritual warfare and to flee from being friends of the world. James, James 4 says this, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so in a culture where persecution was no longer a reality, monasticism replaced martyrdom as kind of the supreme example of what being a disciple of Jesus might look like. And in that culture, Christianity was now safe and even sanctioned. They, they didn't want to conform to the world and grow complacent and callous and casual in their faith. And so they would wean themselves off. They would practice self-denial as a way to imitate Jesus. 
And so, for example, they chose isolation in order to, to seek obedience. One guy named Simon the Stylite practices self-isolation. He sat on top of a high column for 30 years, praying, preaching, and counseling anyone who would come to him. Now, talk about social distancing issues. Like sitting on a, high, on a high tower for 30 years without leaving in order to isolate yourself in, in terms of your faith, you have to admire uh, you have to admire his willingness to seek the Lord and act on his faith, even though that seems a little bit odd. Another example uh, was that when they would read to pray without ceasing, they actually tried to do it, and they realized they weren't very good at it. And so they began to practice solitude and silence as a way to try to fix their mind on praying all the time and develop that skill and develop that, that practice. And so silence was better than foolishness, so they practiced being quiet. For them, they didn't believe that they could understand the Bible unless they were actually transformed their lives into doing it. So it wasn't just about collecting more information, it was actually about seeing transformation of their lives. They wanted to live differently. They wanted to become like Jesus. And so they built these practices to try to wean their life away from some of the attachments that they had and attach themselves more fully to God. And the heart behind that is really for them to become more like Jesus. A Syrian monk came to a man named Coeman uh, once lamenting the hardness of his heart. And he, and he was asking for help and guidance. And uh, this man gave him this word. He says, read the word of God. The drip of a fountain pierces the stone and the gentle word falling softly day by day on the dead hard heart after a while infallibly melts it. He just says, bring yourself, bring your hard heart to the word of God day by day and just trust that it falls in your heart that God's gonna melt it. Now, why do I share all of this with you? Well, uh, we're gonna try to raise some funds and build a tower and I need one of you to sit up there until about 2050 because we're gonna try to practice. No, we're not gonna do that. Uh, don't, we don't need to go there. We don't need to imitate exactly what they did, but um, here's why I wanna bring this stuff to you. I want us to figure out what does it mean for you and me to follow in the footsteps of Jesus in our day. And I share these stories with us because I think sometimes we just get numb. And I want us to recapture the wonder of our faith, recapture the wonder of, of a Savior who came from heaven to earth and showed us what life really looked like. And then he poured out his life and his death for us and was resurrected for us. And then he breathed his spirit into us that we might be born again to new life and full life and rich life. And I just know that we're called to live this simple but inexhaustible way of Jesus. And I want to breathe some life and wonder into that. I love what poet Mary Oliver wrote. So doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? I mean, we've looked at some examples from the past. Let's, let's talk about the present. What is it we're gonna do with this? Uh, you know, to quote the great 20th century philosophers, the talking heads, you may ask yourself, how did I get here? And I think it's a good question to ask. And as we think about that, Francis Schaeffer once wrote, the Christian must understand what confronts him antagonistically in his moment in history. Otherwise, he will become a useless museum piece and not a warrior for Jesus Christ. Because we need to understand our time. We need to understand what it looks like to live for Jesus in the times in which we're facing. And to understand what we're facing, 
And we live in a culture that's dominated with self. We live in a culture where self-identity and self-expression really runs and rules our world. It's the thing that drives all of us. And we try to find meaning and significance to justify our existence through, uh, through self. That's why celebrities are our greatest heroes, because they're those who have the appearance of, self, uh, of being able to express themselves better than everyone else. And yet, Brené Brown would say, we've produced the most anxiety-riddled, obese, in debt, and addicted generation ever. And so we've got this contradiction between everything being about self, but we're just not doing it very well. And so we're creating all kinds of problems. And the problem is that we're self-destructive, that we've got a propensity to cause suffering to ourselves and to those around us. And that's what the Bible calls sin. And we live in a world of selves that are angrily, angrily bumping into one another. And, and so we become what we call now outrage culture. Uh, Derek Rishami, uh, Rich, I'm sorry, Rishmawi said, we live in a time of take no prisoners tribal combat where our enemies are not simply wrong but evil and need to be destroyed. Our social media mobs are not satisfied with highlighting problems but rush to play judge, jury, and social ex executioner in a matter of hours. Indeed, we are encouraged to achieve our own self-vindication through the public prosecution of our enemies' sins. Friends, there is a, a new harsh judgmentalism and legalism that invades our culture. And we're living in the most, what I, in my lifetime, what I would say is the most divided, polarized, antagonistic time of my life. And yet at the same time, our world's crying out for community and crying out for connection. So as a church and as, a, as I think about where we are, we've got to find a way to overcome outrage culture with love. And the problem is that we Christians are sometimes participating in it without seeing it as unchristlike. Church, in some ways, we're looking like the world around us rather than looking like Jesus. In some ways, we've begun to mirror the, the activity of our world and we need to maybe wean ourselves off of the world and, and attach ourselves to Jesus more effectively in order to love more fully. Friends, let's not waste our lives fighting online about stuff that will keep people away from Jesus. It's just not a good investment of our life. It's not what we need to do. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Nobody calls it love when we vent like that. Ray Orland says, as Americans, we have a right to free speech, but when we become Christians, we enter a new culture, and we, we surrender that right, and we stop blurting out whatever we feel. Why? Because we're Christians. Because we're following in the footsteps of Jesus. Why? Because when Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he was attacked, he didn't retaliate. When Jesus um, came, he laid down his life for his enemies. He didn't obliterate them. Friends, let's let grace be our uniqueness in this age. And grace that's shown off by our unity and by a, a loving community. That's what, that's what Jesus called us to be. And he says that's how the world will know really who we are and who he is. So the third thing I want us to look at today is that unity and community are strengthened by grace. We have an opportunity to show the world what real love looks like. And Jesus told us this in both John 13 and John 17, that, uh, that, that as he loved, we're to love one another. And so it's God's grace as we experience that that, that, that changes us and allows us to, to love others. Friends, our world's asking three questions of us. Do you love me? Are you real? And does it work? 
They want to know if, if the things that we talk about when we, when we open up this book and when, uh, when I open up my mouth to preach and when you open up your mouth to encourage one another in small group and when you encourage one another around a coffee table, around a, a bowl of queso or uh, just when you're sharing a drink and you're hanging out with one another and you're sharing wisdom about life, they want to know that about you. They want to know, do you love them? They want to know, uh, are you real? And they want to know, does this stuff work itself out? And they're longing to see a people who can answer all three questions, yes. And when they, when they can't, they would quickly say, I'm sorry, and admit that they failed. That's what I think our world's looking for. Not that we would be perfect, but that we would be real, that we would be honest, that we would point them to something that is something that actually brings life. Friends, as we talk about reopening our city and and our church, can I just tell you, we need an outpouring of the Spirit that doesn't just tickle our experience button and and make us kind of happy about being able to renew uh, the old routines and practices and things we've done and get to experience the things we did. We need an outpouring of the Spirit that breathes grace and life and unity and community in our relationships in a way that shows off what, Christ, what God's love is like to our city. That's what, we, that's what we want to seek. We need a, an outpouring that empowers us with boldness to overcome outrage with grace, to get, overcome anxiety with hope, and to overcome division with unity. And the opportunity is there. It's ours for the taking. Do you know that in John 13 verse we started with today, John 13. He really gives us the means that we can make this happen. It says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. It's the just as I have loved you part that should encourage you. It starts with him. See, grace is free and love is forever. That's the fuel that drives us. It's love that we receive from Jesus that then we can share with one another. Romans 5 says this, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. See, it wasn't us who earned our way by loving so well, but it's us who, while we were weak, received, received grace from Christ. And in that grace, he breathed new life into us and he breathed the spirit into us. And that spirit pours out the love of God into our hearts so that we have something to offer to one another. Just as I have loved you, he says, now go love one another. That's our why. That's what we're about. That's my hope for us in this season. That's the thing that, that I want us to seek and I want us to run after in this season. So next week, uh, we're gonna talk about how you can personally walk out uh, this in community and we'll get uh, to a little more personal kind of application of, of what that might look like within the context of our church and in your own life. And so I hope that uh, just the, this week, you'll just let this this message of the love of God roll over you, uh, that you would rest in the just as I have loved you part, that Jesus does love you, that you would know his love, and that out of that, that we might love one another well and show off his love to our city. Let me pray for us. Father, may your grace be real. Father, just as you loved us in Jesus, Father, might that be real in us, that your Holy Spirit would continually pour out uh, the awareness of the love of Christ in us. Father, that we might love one another well out of the, out of the overflow 
out of the great deep reservoir of grace and love that is ours in him. Father, that we might, that we might just pour out love to others. Father, may it be so. For your name's sake. Amen. Amen.